0: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Inves podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about Europe. Um, I am your host here, Dan Ashmore, financial analyst at Inves, and on the line, we've got Michael Field, who is European market strategist at Morningstar. How are you doing today, Michael?
1: Good Dan, thanks. Thanks for this. Uh, good to be here. Good to speak with you.
0: Yeah, good. Good to have you on. I, I think you're the the first fellow Irish person on this show, so uh, an extra warm welcome to you. Um, but we're going to be talking. Yeah, we're talking Europe, which, uh, like everywhere in the world right now, is, seems to be kind of just on the brink and uh, very precarious economic situation. But uh, yeah, let's uh, let's have a chat about it. Um, first of all. Uh, the big story of the day is, well, the story of the last month, I guess, is banking. So uh, Europe, especially with Credit Suisse, you know, we saw the kind of shock on marriage with UBS and, and all the chaos that, I guess, was imported from the US when, when Silicon Valley Bank went down. How do you think Europe is is faring right now? The, like, Is it still in this banking crisis or has that subsided? What, what, what do you think?
1: I think if you look at markets in the last three weeks and the fact that they've gone up, it's kind of reflective of the attitude attitude of investors that nothing bad has happened since ubs and credit Suisse situation therefore you know investors were kind of wary at the time that okay this could have a snowball effect like we've seen in the us to some degree right you had silicon valley and then you had numerous other banks kind of collapsing or coming to the brink after that and that was what we were kind of fearing in europe okay credit swiss went down and then, you know, is it the case that Deutsche Bank or Commerce Bank are going to follow? And people were really scrutinizing the balance sheets and the loan books to see if these banks are weak or they're going, to, they're going to follow that path. And the fact that nothing has happened since is kind of a relief to markets. Does that mean that we're completely out of the woods yet? No, that, you know, there are some weaknesses there. And it's a case with bank runs that, you know, if enough investors want to pull their money out of a bank, then the bank the bank goes under. That's simply the case of how it is but you know we haven't seen any bad news since then and the market has taken that taken that as kind of an indicator that the central banks have kind of done their job and the swiss government have stepped in properly um, and therefore things are more secure from that perspective
0: yeah and you you mentioned central banks there i definitely want to want to touch on on them um but like you first of all like a credit squeeze do you think because like Credit Suisse has kind of been in the gutter for a while, like you, you, even you, you look at a share price, like it's been a horrendous investment over, over the last 20 plus years. Um, and, you, you know, this this uh, people had kind of scrutinized it before
1: and raised alarm bells, like was how much of a surprise was this whole situation to you? I think, OK, given the size of Credit Suisse and you know how long it's been around, whatever, 167 years or something, it's been through quite a lot, you know, it's been through a couple of world wars and other turmoils. Fair. So, yes, people knew there was trouble there. You know, it's been through a couple of big issues in the last while um, where they've had to take huge write-offs and cancel funds and things like this. But I think people always assumed that they had enough in them to kind of get through. Like, there was, there's, very, there's a few different parts of Credit Suisse, and only one of them is that kind of trading division or investment banking division that's kind of been causing the problems. You had that rump of the business that was that, you know, yeah, um, swiss wealth business that's that's pretty profitable pretty secure and that's ultimately why ubs bought them right to get access to these to these other areas um so i think people knew that there was there was issues with credit swiss there was trouble with credit swiss but the kind of precipitous nature of the share price in the last couple of weeks of the of the company um you know scared people deeply and people thought oh wow actually this this could go under
0: yeah, I, I think that's probably a, a fair way to summarize it. Um, it, it but it is, it, it's kind of like what you say, like it's mad if you said at the start of the year, you know, that Credit Suisse would be, you know, forced down the aisle with, with UBS. And yet still, like, okay, let's look at the stock 600, the, the European index, like it's up 9% in the year. Like it's its kind of funny to, it almost reminds me of COVID. You remember the start of COVID when uh, the first few months when the world felt like it was quite literally falling apart, yet markets were, you know, going like printing outrageous returns. So it's kind of funny that that dichotomy. Um, but let's let's talk about central banks here because you mentioned that and they're, you know, probably, you know, it feels like they've been almost the controlling markets, especially with the Fed and the US um, over the last year, 18 months. Uh, Europe's situation specifically, like they haven't raised rates as much as the US. We're still quite far behind. You know, our inflation's still a little bit higher. Um, what, what do you think Europe's position is right now on this battle of inflation because you know b- before the last i know it seems like we have peaked and we've come down a bit and the last few months we have seen share prices rise and stuff but inflation still very much is a fight ongoing and before that it was you know all that was you pick up the ft bloomberg every single day you know front page is inflation 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 so where do you think we are on that with regards to uh, yeah europe's position
1: yeah it's you know, everything kind of comes back to this at the moment, you know, I open, I start webinars and try to speak about stocks and sectors and stuff, but it all <laughs> comes back to this. It's just the place you have to start off with. It's the elephant in the room if you if you don't deal with it. Your first point about, okay, the ECB has raised rates not as high as the Fed or the Bank of England is is completely accurate. That That's kind of what happened. But at the same time, one europe was in a weaker position to begin with right if you look economically pmi indicators gdp across the eurozone it's been it's been really weak for a while now like pmi indicators were trending down from the middle of 2022 for the for the rest of the year and it's and even when they've ticked up in the last number of months it's still very precarious it's just hovering on the the border of becoming you know from going from growth to negative growth again so I think from that perspective, Europe—we we have to acknowledge that Europe's in a slightly we, we, weaker position economically than the U.S. Right? So from that perspective, the Fed had more leverage in terms of you know they could raise rates slightly faster or slightly harder without hitting their economy too hard. If anything, the U.S. economy has been overheating for a while now. You look at you know the labor force and things like this. How far wages have had to adjust just to just to get people into jobs um and Europe's just been weaker so but at the same time if you look at where the ECB has come from we've come from like zero percent interest rates now to kind of three and a half percent and it's only been eight nine months so from that perspective the ECB are really kind of pulled the finger out and said look this just this just has to be done and then this comes back to you know your point about the banking crisis that they raised rates right after the credit Suisse situation so they acknowledge that and we can go into this further later, but they've acknowledged that interest rates are causing, rising interest rates are causing problems for banks. They acknowledged the kind of potential domino effect that people feared after Credit Suisse, and they still went ahead and raised rates. So that kind of shows you where their priorities are, that they know there could be potential issues from raising rates, but... You know inflation's high and it could be persistent we can we can get into that further as well but they know this and they've they're they're fearful of it and you know, we've got an issue in europe as well that rates are in that inflation could actually rise over the course of this year for, for various other reasons and the ecb are just thinking okay we need to, we need to plow on with these um, rate rises and try to nip this in the bud there's no point in trying to pull back slightly now if we have to ramp up interest rates again toward the end of the year. Like it's, it's the kind of lesser of two evils, raising interest rates and taming inflation.
0: Yeah. I and mean, you've kind of hit the nail on the head there. That's, that's kind of the the rock and the hard place that central banks around the world, not just Europe are between, I guess, you know, you want, you want to kick up those rates to pull in that inflation, but not so far that you get, you know, things like banks that have been around for <laughs> centuries falling apart. So yeah, that's, uh, that's and I think so, something that, like, I absolutely agree, you know, and you look at Europe has been weaker and, you know, we've come from a lower base rate or ne- negative rates even for a bit. Um, and then, like, we've got, you know, it's 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 a monetary union, but it's not a fiscal union. We've got, you know, we've got Italy and Germany in the, in the same thing. You know, it's, it's obviously like the Germans will want to raise rates a bit higher, pull inflation, Italy are a bit more burdened with debt. So, you know, you've got a little, it's a little more complex than the US, I always think, what sometimes people miss. Um but like, yeah, you mentioned there, we still raise rates or Europe still raise rates post Credit Suisse. Do you think, like how materially do you think that Credit Suisse and Silicon Valley and that, that banking episode uh, changed plans? Like, do you think if they hadn't, if that wobble hadn't, hadn't come to the fore, do you think like we'd still be on a more aggressive rate hiking path? Because like I, I did a piece recently and compared, you know, rate expectations in the US um, before Silicon Valley Bank. And then afterwards by looking at, you know, the, the target rates for July Fed meeting and, and further out in the year. And, you know, they flipped quite emphatically. So do you think like this really has materially shifted the European plan going forward with regards to the ECB?
1: Mm, not if you believe the ECB commentary. Um, if you listen to, to kind of what they're saying, they're saying, okay, in the next couple of months, you could have two more rate rises, right? Between now and the summer or what have you. So maybe how aggressively they were going to do it changed slightly, but the direction of travel is kind of the same that they think, okay, this is where we'll have to get to. This is how quickly we'll have to do it. And I don't think that's changed. Maybe you're right. You know, maybe they're thinking, okay, maybe we can't do a 50 base point raise now the month after credit Suisse, Maybe we'll have to eke that in a bit more slowly, but I think the change that that's taken place is just only minor. Ultimately, they're basing their decisions on inflation like they're trying to backstop the banks they're trying to kind of cut that off where it is backstop the banks and then still raise rates on the other side of the equation and that's the goal to try to bring inflation down and I think they've got their own views about the danger of inflation and you know, how they get to that rate rise they need to get is, is, is the kind of differentiating factor, but they're going to get there. So it just means maybe it's pushed out by a month or two, but ultimately they're going to raise the rates as much as they have to do. Like the Bank of England and whatnot have been, and the Fed have been slightly more aggressive about it. But as I said, where where the ECB have come from, 0%, um, it's hmm. still moving at a pretty decent pace, you know? Yeah, and, and this
0: kind of leads into the next question, because... Um, so like you you guys wrote this report, I'll, I'll link it in the description for anyone who wants to read it. Um, Lots of info in it, but yeah, your European equity market outlook uh, looking ahead to the next quarter. And like we've talked so much about inflation here and you said yourself, like every time you give a webinar, you ask about inflation, like I immediately asked you about inflation. How, like when you're talking about valuations going forward, how much of it comes down, like just, just second guessing the ECB and what's going to happen or the Fed, like how much is inflation controlling it right now? Like compared to, obviously like macro factors are always, front and center and important but like mm. is it really that like like let before the stock market is just purely being controlled by this i guess central bank's actions and the the market just trying to predict what exactly the path is going to be
1: um okay i think there's there's a couple of kind of points in there ultimately like inflation it seems weird to talk about inflation as much as we do right um especially considering for the first whatever, 12, 15 years of my kind of investment life, inflation has kind of been something that's kind of, nobody's even talked about. It's never been the kind of front and center. And then suddenly, you know, it's front and center. And that's because we hit inflation rates of double digit rates just last year. The UK is still experiencing double digit inflation rates. And then ultimately the business cycle is guided by central banks and interest rates and how they let that economy flow or if they pull it in or not. And okay, from a valuation perspective, when we're looking at companies, and Morningstar is slightly skewed as well to what we call um, moat companies with moats, so kind of higher quality moats with com- companies with competitive advantages and things like this. So it's not just purely cyclical companies that you're modeling. It's not you're just saying okay, this is going to grow at GDP, and you're just working at GDP. Some of these companies have kind of structural drivers; or they're a bit more resilient and things like this. So from a stock perspective and from a valuation perspective, when we're doing the analysis. I don't think it factors in as much as you might you might think from an analyst perspective. They have it in their minds about how inflation can affect it. Certainly with certain sectors as well, inflation is going to hit harder than others. Interest rates are more important for you know, utilities or banking sectors. That's a huge driver in the kind of profits they can make as a result. But the average analyst who's covering in a consumer and industrial stock, I don't think they're sitting down worrying about inflation every day and trying to factor that in but ultimately bigger picture and how that reflects on the market and what investors think interest rates and inflation are going to have a huge effect as a result, you know?
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's
1: dig down into some
0: of these, these sectors. Like what do you think, um, first of all, like stand out as attractively valued sectors right now as we kind of tackle this, this weird, uh, economic climate.
1: Yeah. So I think one thing to say as well is that, um, where we are in the cycle affects massively investor kind of confidence and investor outlook and how they're trying to position themselves right so i think the first thing to say is that markets you know you've talked about the rise we've seen over the last number of months or over the last year Mm. and perhaps it seems a bit strange that markets are as highly valued or look as highly valued as they are considering all the risks and where we are and, you know, you mentioned at the beginning of the pandemic, obviously no one thought that markets were going to go up during the pandemic or house prices and things like this. But, you know, people had time and focus and they were looking at the bigger picture and how how things could be influenced as a result. And they just they just put their money where their mouth was and invested. And we saw the markets rise. But even with the likes of the FTSE 100, at kind of close to 8000 in the last week. Um, if we look across the sectors that we cover across Europe, like every single sector is trading at below what, what our fair value estimate for the whole sector is, which is which is pretty incredible. Um, wow. Obviously, obviously some of them, um, you know, you, you think okay, this makes sense, right? So something like a utilities, um, consumer defensive, they're, they've got maybe ten percent upside, but they're close to being fairly valued. So that's they're, they're obvious ones, right? Investors are kind of putting their money in places that are inflation protected places that they know their money is going to be safe and even if we go through another nine months one year of kind of hard economic terms in high inflation they're still going to be okay and that and that point that i made about you know investor um outlook being in reflected in valuations is very true in terms of the more cyclical stuff that if i look at like consumer cyclicals at the moment it's the cheapest place to be in the markets and that's because investors are thinking okay I'd like to be optimistic about the market but if we hit a recession then some of these kind of consumer cyclical names are going to get absolutely hammered you know companies selling jet skis or what have you or automobiles Um, straight away you know they're going to take a hit if we hit a recession and that's why investors are kind of more cautious as a result but at the same time within that consumer bucket we see kind of pockets of opportunity same in the likes of energy. Energy is up twenty percent in the last year, and the fact that oil prices have fallen more recently would lead you to think, okay, maybe energy is not a great place to be. But so far this year, it's holding up pretty well, um, and we can we can talk about that more in a while. But you know, there's there's that transition to renewables. There's a lot of structural things happening that are interesting there as well. And then lastly, one of the areas that we're kind of highlighting is around healthcare. And it's an area that hasn't been cheap for a long time, which is why I haven't been talking about it. But what you've seen over the last number of months is investors start to kind of drift to other areas. Um, some kind of concern around ability to pass on inflation or, you know, pandemic-related COVID drugs coming off. So we're not, they're not producing as much as them as they were. And then people have started to focus on things like patent cliffs as well. And what that kind of means is they've just kind of turned off the the um the healthcare stocks a bit more but we still see them as kind of really defensive so despite me kind of painting a picture of markets being relatively fairly valued there's still plenty of places to invest across that
0: okay interesting so um i guess when you talk fair value perspective which which is all you can really talk about as an analyst at the end of the day um so let, let me ask you like a really simple but typical question like you're saying like a lot of these are attractively valued compared to the u.s like do you think that europe is a good place to invest right now like on a super high level uh very general
1: question. Yeah. No, no, it's a fair and we do this comparison all the time. Um, you know, in 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 the reports, because we're dealing mainly, it, yeah, we, yeah we, we look we're dealing with global investors. They can put their money wherever they want, right? So you have to kind of show them is it a better place or not? And one of the kind of the weird things we're seeing is for the last two years or so, or even since the beginning of the pandemic, the US has been more highly valued or closer to where we think it, it should be. Um, than Europe so there's been kind of more opportunity in Europe for a number of years now and only in the last quarter is that kind of flipped all of a sudden and you have to think to yourself like why Europe's not out of the woods Um, you know things are still pretty weak there and things are moving on a bit better in the US Um, but the reason kind of comes back to investors have been looking at europe quite negatively for a while and it's shown up in the polls right we've been asking people you know where do you think is more attractive and they've all said the u.s for maybe two years Mm -hmm. or so at this point but what's changed is that people feel like okay now we're aware of all the risks in europe and they've suddenly turned and said okay should things progress the way they're going now in nine months the kind of headroom for being better is actually bigger in europe than the u.s we know where the u.s is going it's got a slight upward trajectory but in Europe it could go from where we are now which is like teetering on the brink of you know going into recession to actually having some decent growth having maybe two three percent growth when all those if all those things don't go don't get worse over the next nine months the Ukraine war etc but if if that happens if we remain on that trajectory then people look at Europe and think okay there's there's potentially more upside now so that that's suddenly kind of shifted and that's kind of a an unusual thing to see
0: yeah, and, and one sector in particular I would ask about in, in Europe, and you, you talked about it in the, the last question, is is energy, because, you know, you mentioned uh, prices have come down, yet you, you're still kind of looking at that as an area. And we, we've also seen recently, in the last week or two, like another OPEC cut, like, let, let's dig in a little more into this like how do you see the european energy marketplace right now like are we out of the woods regards to this this terrible energy crisis um you know it's it's obviously not winter anymore as well which helps um from like yeah a, a, a macro point of view and then also yeah as a stock valuation point of view going forward what what, what do you think
1: yeah so on the, i think the the energy crisis um we're out of the woods i think for now is the the short answer that like we got through the winter and if you look at where we were five months ago before the winter was starting people were literally worried about us running out of energy in europe um investors were concerned that particularly in places like germany which had a really high exposure to russian gas for for their industrial output right the mittelstad and all their industrial kind of their heartland that you could i think one of the most followed accounts on twitter in europe was the guy who kind of controls potentially rationing energy across Germany, right? That this guy who was kind of um, a civil servant to a large degree was suddenly like on the spotlight with like you know (laughs) 500,000 followers on Twitter. And that's how much focus we had on this. Like this could go horribly wrong. And the German government had said as well that look, if we have energy shortages, households are gonna get all the energy they need and we're gonna cut back on firms and industrial companies and how much energy they use. And what that would have meant for Germany, which was kind of teetering on the brink of kind of going into negative growth and in industrial production is like, it would have taken them way in, way over the brink. It would have like hammered industrial production and GDP for Germany and possibly Europe as well, right? If, the, if this had happened. So the, the ramifications of it would have been huge. So we've, we're out of that to a large degree, right? We're moving into spring and summer soon and... We're in a better place you know storage tanks are relatively full there's lng supply coming from the us now pretty steadily and europe has put out a pretty good plan the re um, repower eu plan about how they're going to wean themselves off russian energy by the end of 2026 that's still a bit away but at least they have a plan in place anyway which should get us out of there and basically it means that okay we could come into issues again coming into this winter but at the same time, we're in a way better place than we were five months ago. So um, that's the kind of macro overview of it. But okay, from an energy company perspective, then in Europe, where do we stand? I think the interesting thing is, and this comes back to, to valuations, which we spoke about, we see the energy sector in Europe, the energy sector that we cover, has got about 20% upside to where, where our fair value is for it. And that's not the case in the US. In the UK, it's, in the US, it's almost up to where you know it should be. And the reasoning behind that is the most interesting part that, you know, this it's, it's theoretical why why all these investors are suddenly being shy of Europe. But one of the large kind of reasons thrown out there is that from an ESG perspective, people are shying away from oil and gas companies in Europe, whereas in the U.S. they don't have the same concerns around ESG currently. And that's what's kind of driving the discount between the two companies. And, and further from that, then why, why that's even more interesting is that, If you look at what the energy companies in europe versus the us are saying and doing they're doing opposite things at the moment so the us companies spend about 10 percent of their capital in capital expenditure budgets on renewable energies and in europe now they've suddenly stepped up the shells the bps the totals have said now going forward they're going to spend a fifth of their budget on renewable energy projects going forward which might not sound like a huge step, but over five, six years, that's and at those companies' size, that's going to make a huge difference. So you're looking at the situation where valuations are cheaper in Europe because people are worried about ESG factors. But if we look five, six years into the future, these oil and gas companies could be the largest renewable players in Europe all of a sudden. So that could flip reverse from an investment perspective, and they could look hugely attractive then all of a sudden.
0: That's a very interesting view to have, and again, because I was going to ask you when you were talking, about, I was thinking like, okay, why, why do you think okay they're they're discounted right now, but why do you think it's going to change in the future? So you think they could almost like leverage that to their benefit in in some kind of way? Um, but yeah, it is interesting. There's definitely a split like stateside because I know like even you looked at Biden. I saw in his state of union address, I don't know when that was, maybe January. He, he had a go at those like bumper profits uh, that the big five oil companies got, but. Yeah. In, in terms of action, it's it's Europe very much leading the way on that side. Um, and how do you think that this recent OPEC supply cut is going to affect things at all? Or is that just kind of a, a
1: minor bump? Um, I think it's OK. There's a few. OPEC has always had a huge influence on the market. Right. When they when they announced cuts or when they announced that they're increasing production, they had a huge kind of strangled hold and it influenced the market massively. What's changed over the last 10 years, and we hit that tipping point a little while back, I'm not sure, was it like about eight years ago, the US suddenly became the biggest producer of oil and gas in the world, right, of oil in the world. Um, and how that's, what what's that, what, what has that meant? Okay, the US doesn't have the same control over oil and gas as the Saudis, for example, right? It's all state owned. So they can turn an on, on and off the taps at will. Whereas in the US, you're dealing with thousands and thousands of firms you can't turn it on and off as quickly. But what it means is if OPEC say, okay, we're cutting years ago, that would have meant immediately the spike in oil price, right? You know, People talk about the seventies and the oil crisis and having to mm. queue up in the UK and Ireland to get gas at the pump, right? To get petrol at the pump where that's changed now is that if indeed OPEC pulled back, the U S are still the largest producer and they can just kind of pick up the slack, so the actual effect on oil price as a result of that doesn't have the same impact as it used to. Okay, so w- w- we've talked
0: about like uh, sectors you like. We have talked about energy, and and you know what's attractively valued. Are there any sectors that you know you don't think the, that you think valuations are you think they're overvalued right now in Europe?
1: So not not quite right. It's an unusual situation in that front that every single sector is still got some value there something like an industrial strangely enough is actually really close to being fair valued at the moment and i think that what that comes down to is that some of these sectors contain really high quality companies that people like like we mentioned people think that okay these companies are inflation proof or they're recession proof and then people are bidding up the valuations there as a result and that's why you're seeing those sectors kind of rise but no there's a there's a chart we show in the pack, and people can see this for themselves that we look across each and every sector and we figure out you know how attractive the opportunities are as a result, and pretty much every single sector has like really really um good opportunities at the moment, I think Last time I did the figures, it was 8% of our coverage we think is overvalued at the moment, which is, which is almost nothing, right? So like more than 90% of the coverage still has pretty good upside from here, which, which is just incredible. So, you know, I, I've spoken kind of slightly doom and gloom about certain sectors being kind of up with events or what have you, but you don't have to look too deeply to find opportunities. There's just, just so many at the moment. Well yeah we'll we'll, we'll uh, leave it there but there you have it uh Europe <laughs> the, the
0: place to invest right now because uh, all things are good and we all know it's going to happen <laughs> but um yeah thanks for coming on the show michael super interesting stuff and i will leave the link to that uh morning valuation report which michael worked on in the description if any listeners want to check it out um but yeah thanks for coming on the show hey.